So welcome to Anecdotally Speaking, a podcast about business storytelling. Hey, it's great to be back on episode two, Mark. It's, uh, it seems like a whole week's gone past. Oh, it's, we're veritably cracking along. <laughs> <laughs> so just to remind people about why we do this, uh, this podcast, we know every human being is a, a natural storyteller, but uh, it is hard to do it in business. And so what we're trying to do is to help you fill your pockets full of stories um, that you can use in a business setting, but also give some insight into why these stories work or don't. Yep. And what business situations you can use them in. Yeah, you really need that repertoire, don't you? You need them, you know, so you can tell them off the cuff when you need them as opposed to, oh, gee, I need a story. Yeah, and if you've got lots of stories, then, you know, it just makes that task so much easier. Indeed. So I hear you've got a, a story for us, Mark. Looking forward to hearing it. Yeah, so this is an event that occurred around the turn of the century. And the source of it is uh, Margaret Wheatley, her paper, Leadership and the Power of Chaos. So the new head of the Federal Aviation Administration uh, in the US was appointed. And when he was going through the interview process, one of the things that he was very keen to understand was the extent to which he would have autonomy in decision making. So that if something happened, would he have the authority to make a decision or would he have to go through layers and layers and layers of bureaucracy in order to figure out what to do? He was pretty confident that he could do the job. And, uh, you know, he was given assurance that he would have the autonomy. And as it turned out, his ability to make decisions and, uh, and judgments was tested on his very first day because his very first day as the head of the Federal Aviation Authority was 9-11. So heck of a first day. Yeah. So there was no policy. There was no rule book. There was no process for dealing with what happened on that day. It was unprecedented. And there were 5,000 planes in the air at the time, and there was no idea about which ones were being controlled by terrorists, etc. And so he made the decision to ground the fleet, right, to ground every aircraft in U.S. airspace. Now, this has never been done before. It's, it's unprecedented. The normal procedures simply did not apply. They had to ignore the protocols and make it up as they went along, doing whatever was necessary to safely land those planes at the same time trying to ascertain which ones were being controlled by terrorists, etc. So it's, a, it's an incredible task that they undertook. And it took great courage as well, because they were doing things that have never done before. And they did it. In four hours, they'd landed 5,000 aircraft. Now, there was not enough space at the normal air, airports. So they were, the air traffic controllers were ringing their mates in different places saying, Have, you know, can your uh, runway handle a, a 737 or a 76? Right, so and they did it. It was considered a major achievement to the extent that the FAA did a review afterwards to try and figure out exactly why it worked and so that they could put in place a protocol to handle a similar situation in the future. Basically, to you know, write the rule book for how do you deal with this. So it was to a really great credit to the FAA. They quickly realised that trying to write a rule book for how to do this was pointless because what had made this work was the professionalism and expertise of the individuals involved, the fact that they had an unprecedented circumstance, so they had autonomy, but also they were really well connected and they trusted each other. So rather than write a new procedural process, what they decided to do was to work on building the web of effective relationships between all of these key people so that they was building trust and their ability to make the right decisions. And so they basically invested in getting more connection because they knew that would make the difference. Wow. That's such a great story, isn't it? I mean, for me, you know, one of the reasons I think well, that story resonates is that it's such a memorable moment in our lifetime right you know we all know exactly where we were when that event occurred but we never really think about what were the logistics and then when you start to hear just how difficult it was to actually make something like that happen you realize that um, you know a phenomenal feat has occurred 
So I think there's things like the numbers, you know, and the event and just how much it resonates as a as something in our lifetime, an experience that we've all had. I think that's one of the key things. Yeah. yeah. So firstly, the impact, and secondly, having the details, 5,000 aircraft in the four hours. and I think too, you know, when you're, um, you start off and you're not giving it away that it's a 9-11, you know, you've got this guy starting out, you know, he's starting this new job, he's hoping he's got this autonomy, and then the first day, that's the reveal, right? The first day, oh my God, it's 9-11. And I like that, that you don't really understand exactly what the context is until you're about a third into the story. Yeah, it's kind of like you, people are wondering, why, why is this interesting? Yeah. And yeah. then suddenly it becomes, oh, now I understand. In fact, I remember someone saying to me once that one of the driving forces behind a good story is when the listener or the audience is asking themselves the question, what's happening or what's going to happen? And so if you're sitting there as the audience going, oh, what's happening? What's happening next? What might happen? That's the energy that's pulling people through that story. And so I think that beginning of the story works really well because you're sort of just helping them get into that mindset of asking that question, right? Yeah. And all of a sudden, bam, that occurs and you're asking the next question. Okay, so what does he do? What happens next? Bam, he does it. And what happens next? You know, so it just draws you through the story. Yeah. Yeah, for me, one of the things that I like about that story is that it breaks the script of the importance of process. Yeah. Now, we all know process is important, but it's also equally true that process doesn't help us solve or doesn't help us tackle a whole range of problems. And yet our go-to response most of the time is, let's write a process, even though it's a complex situation where there are, you know, nothing's going to occur the way you plan. So the fact that the FAA decided not to invest in a new process, but to build the connections between the uh, the air traffic controllers, it breaks the script. Yeah. It's a bit of a surprise. It's a surprise, absolutely. Now, one of the things, you know, just getting the sense of the numbers, I think that's part of it. You know, 7,000 planes in the air. Um, now, that's how I remember it, but what, what was the number that you actually said? Was it 5,000? 5,000. 5,000, yeah. But these are big numbers, right? Absolutely. So, um, again, that's that sort of shows the enormity of, of the feet in front of it. Yeah, I think those are some of the key things. It'd be interesting now to sort of talk about the some of the business points that come out of this, right? And off the bat. Yeah. I mean, for me, the big, big one is just around the importance of connection, the importance of networks. That's how you respond to complex and messy things where there's no right answer. And, you know, just the fact that the FAA decided, okay, we're going to invest in just keeping these people connected is a phenomenally adaptive approach. Because they don't know exactly what the next weird terrorist act is going to be. And it's certainly not going to be what it was before. So, you know, having a process is a totally waste of time, right? To me, that's the sort of the big point in that story. If I was to say another point, it'd be just that humans have a phenomenal ability to respond. You know, here's this guy walking into something that no one has ever seen before. And yet, with a great team, with a great sort of uh, sense of calm and direction, this guy was able to show that courage that was required on that day to make the big calls. Imagine making the call, we're going to ground all aircraft. Yeah, yeah, it's huge. I mean, the impact on the economy, the impact on just the chaos of commuters, I mean, it's just absolutely crazy, right? Yeah, that was able call. to do it. That's a big call. Yep. 
So they're two things. Um, they're probably the two big ones for me. Are there any others that come out for you? Well, I guess you hinted at the big one that I think, uh, yeah. which is that in business, connectivity is a huge performance improver. Yeah, right. Um, and so people who are involved in getting organizations more connected, you know, around communities of practice and things like that, you hear that term in the knowledge management field. Yes. This is a great example that highlights the importance of this connectivity in helping an organization deal with extraordinary, but also day-to-day. Yeah. Working for a consulting firm back 20-odd uh, years ago, one of our uh, consultants over in uh, Western Australia, his client came out and said, what's the defense standard for X. The guy didn't know, but uh, he was connected to the project management community uh, within our consulting firm. And he just sent an email to the members of that community. And within 10 minutes, he had a definitive answer from a guy working in the project office that was working on the new defense standard. And so he was able to go into the client and say, look, our current standard is this, uh, but I suggest we, we wait. I'm, we're making a decision about what, what standard we adopt for this project, yep. because within three weeks, there's going to be a new standard. And, and the client looked at him and goes, that's amazing. How, you know more about my business than I do. It's true. Yeah. Only that connectivity allowed that to happen. Yeah, that's a good point. One of the one of the things, you know, sort of moving on to, you know, where do we, how would you use a story like this? You know, like what's the scenario? And I've actually used it a number of times. I think I mentioned in my book that one of the examples was I remember having this lunch with, it was the head of the fire authority, the country fire authority here in Victoria, and also the head of strategy at the Melbourne Fire Brigade this a few years back. And the head of the CFA was sort of saying, hey, look, we've got thousands and thousands of volunteers, you know, working for us. What we need to do is set up a best practice database. I mean, you can imagine the groan I had when I heard the, when <laughs> I heard the phrase I, best practice database. I can imagine. Yeah. And, and so I thought to myself, the thing is, if I said to him, look, quite frankly, a best practice database is not going to get you what you want, we would then be in an argument. Right. And you don't win an argument like that. And not with somebody who's so experienced and uh, so senior. That's right. And also, they've thought about it a lot. So it's, it's so much better to go to a pull strategy rather than a push strategy. So instead of arguing with him, I just sort of said, look, let me just give you something else to think about. And I told him the 9-11 story. And at the end, he's, there's a pause and he's looking at me and he sort of goes, oh, my God, we've got one of the biggest network of firefighters in the country. We need to make more use of that connectivity. Like, you know, so he was working it out for himself, right? And to me, that's the, that's the beauty of this sort of approach. You give them the, the material to start to work out some of these things themselves. And so in terms of this story and its use in business, it's a fantastic example of the art of influence. Yes. In that this person's got a, a view and a strongly held view about having a best practice database and tackling it front on fighting against that view often will make it worse because yeah. he'll just he'll be defending his view and he'll be re- reinforcing it. So it's a great example of how you can overcome that by a, an influence strategy, a pull strategy, yeah. where he tells his story and suddenly, as you say, he's figuring it out for himself. And he replaces his old story about a best practice database with the 9-11 story. That's it, with a new story. That's, yeah. a, that's a fantastic example of how to use that. A similar experience where a large organization, their project management office, yep. They had a team of people who were writing processes for everything and, and all the project team members were unhappy, to say the least, that everything was being regimented. And when they heard the 9-11 story, they went, that's totally what we need to think more about in our organization right? and less about the process. It was funny, though, because one of the people in the room on the day was the head of the process group. And she goes, 
well, I've heard it, but I'm not convinced. <laughs> right, <laughs> so, right. So it's great. You know, like it's one of those, it's a very useful source of influence, yeah. but it's not going to work in every circumstance. No, no. I mean, Gary Klein, the, you know, the psychologist Gary Klein, you know, he's like the father of naturalistic decision making. He once said in, in one of his books that insight is when you unexpectedly come to a better story. And this is what these people have done. Unexpectedly, they've got this better story and they've gone, my God, that's it. That makes sense to me. And so this is about insight. It's about helping people find. And you're so right. One story doesn't always work. You know, sometimes you have to tell three, four stories and then you'll find that the one that you didn't even imagine was going to connect, connects with the person and all of a sudden they get that insight and they see things from a, a different perspective. Hmm. I wonder if there's are there other business points that we could uh, draw from the 9-11 story? Well, I think there's something up there about just having that belief in yourself. That leader who came in and really wanted the decision-making power. He got tested, you know, more than anyone could imagine on the first day. But he had that belief and confidence in himself and he got up to a very good outcome considering the, the situation that he was facing. So... Uh, perhaps that's a, another uh, use of the story. Yeah, and that triggers another one for me, which is about the importance of autonomy and how when you give people autonomy, so skilled people who are motivated to do a good job, yep. when they're given autonomy, they almost always do the right thing. Yeah, right. And yet we try to control so much what they do that we remove their autonomy. So that's uh, a great example. In this case, there wasn't a choice to give them autonomy. The chaotic situation they found themselves in left no other choice. Yeah. Um, and so they had a lot of autonomy and they exercised it with immense professionalism. Yes, indeed. So what's the wrap up? What's the, if you were to summarize what we've covered here, you know, what are some of the key things that we draw out of this story? So I guess for me, some of the key things are the fact that it's related to 9-11, one of yeah. the most impactful situations, events in, in our history, yeah. adds to the effective, adds the power and the effectiveness of that story tremendously. Yes. The, the details, it's important to get the facts right when you're telling a story. So you know, 5,000 aircraft, four hours, etc. The point you made about the reveal when it was the 11th of September, right? When that became obvious. And the fact that it breaks the script which is we need to have processes for everything. Yes. Yeah. So those are some of the things that I think really make that story work. Out of 10, what would you rate this? I would give this one a nine. Nine. Fantastic. Yeah. I'm going to give it an eight because uh, it is a very good story uh, and I have seen it work beautifully in terms of changing people's minds. So this is a, a robust story that you can use out there and, and have a big impact. Yep. And if you haven't done it already, this is one that can go straight into your story banks. Oh, by the way, when we say story bank, we really believe that it's important that you have a repository, a place where you store your stories yes, so that they're available to you when you need them. We'll do an episode on story banks at I, some stage. What a lovely idea. Okay. Well, thanks, guys. It's great to be here again. It'd be great if you can uh, go onto iTunes and rate our podcast, uh, share it with your friends, um, our Twitter account is just at anecdote. You can find me at, at Sean Callahan. Mark, you are at M Shank AU. It's a bit more complicated. At M Shank AU. And please send us comments, questions. Very happy to sort of get the conversation going and, and really help, you know, spread the word about business storytelling. Until next week. <laughs>